Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Seriously, the New Statesman podcast that takes pop culture seriously. I'm Caroline Crampton. And I'm Anna Leskovich. This week, it's our first book club episode. We're talking about The Innocent Wife by Amy Lloyd. We'll be reviewing the book, reading out some of your comments and also talking to the author about how she put the story together. Hello. Hello. And welcome, very excitingly, to our very first book club episode. I'm really excited about this. It's been in the work for ages and Caroline, you've been planning very hard on the book club. Yeah, well, we've always loved reading books with Seriously listeners. So we thought it made sense to actually formalise the arrangement so you know what to read and when. And yeah, this has been a really good one to start with, I think. When I first picked it to do, like at the end of last year, I thought, oh yeah, I have a hunch that this book is going to do really well. Mm. And lo and behold, it has. It's been on the bestseller list, I think, for the last couple of weeks, which as you'll hear when you hear our interview with Amy later on, it couldn't happen to a nicer person, really. Oh, great. Yeah, it's one of those books that I feel like is not necessarily the first thing that would jump out at me to read. But then as the hype grows and grows and grows, I want to know what it is and what it's about. So I read Girl on the Train and Gone Girl and books like that for similar reasons, because I'm not actually a contemporary crime thriller reader most of the time. But this is, as the genre goes, such an interesting one to go for. So I'm really, really excited to, to be doing it for our first book club episode. Yeah, so just to recap what it's about before we really get into it for those who've read it or a little intro for those who haven't yet. The Innocent Wife is the story of Samantha, a young woman from the UK who becomes interested in the case of of a convicted American serial killer called Dennis Danson via a popular documentary series. She joins an online community that's working to prove his innocence and ends up visiting and then marrying him while he's on death row. Eventually, their efforts come to fruition and Dennis is released, only for Samantha to discover that the case might not be as cut and dried as she thought. That is the bit that really jumps out at me as the most interesting, is the online justice community that springs up around this character of Dennis Danson and how Samantha is like a normal person who basically goes down a true crime Mm. rabbit hole, which is something... I mean, we've talked so much about true crime on Seriously for the last few years, So I think I loved that way in and I thought it was very accurate at reconstructing what it's like when you do become really obsessed with a true crime story like that. And 
she kind of um, pieces together a narrative, Amy Lloyd, using fragments of of documentary and we we read extracts from sort of true crime books written about him and I really really loved that as a way in yeah it was interesting when I talked to Amy she said something very insightful I thought about how she wanted the internet to seem like another character in the book Mm. because it's not necessarily something that a lot of books do very well yet you know, most people actually try and avoid writing about the internet in fiction if they can, mm-hmm. because often it can come across as quite like cheesy or rubbish or outdated quickly. So she was like, I really wanted it to seem real and like it had a proper presence. And I think she achieved that because it does really drive the story along. And at no point did I think, oh, well, that's definitely not how it would happen. The relationships she forms with people online are like genuine and unfiltered and there's no sort of sneering about the fact that oh they're your online friends or anything like that Mm. and it definitely mirrors you know we've talked about this and written you've written about this as well the sort of reaction to things like serial making a murderer the jinx are all very very similar to this sensational true crime documentary whether it's a film series or a podcast there seem to be the two mediums although there are books that get this kind of following as well people get super into it they think they know better than the police and the people who've actually investigated and before you know it there's a sort of urban legend or multiple urban legends about a case that may or may not have any bearing on the actual facts yeah because the book is kind of split in that for the first, I think it's over the first third, we know Dennis through these books, through the through what we've heard about the documentary, through these online forums, and a little bit through um, Amy going to visit him in prison. But those are very short windows of a person mm. to, to get. And then, spoiler alert, when, when Dennis is, is freed and exonerated, we obviously start to see a lot more of him. <laughs> and just you know, whether or not he's guilty, just the kind of fullness of a very complex character and a character who's spent a long time in jail, etc. It all comes to the fore and he's just he's a very difficult character to to get on with. So I think that that feeling of, oh, this guy's innocent, I've seen twenty minutes of everything he's ever done mm. and so I've decided he's likable, you know, that's not something that holds up when you actually have to spend hours and hours with a character and you get to see their full character it just never works like that does it yeah because I think that's a really interesting uh thing that happens in the book where Samantha builds up a picture of someone based on as you say like a film and a few really short visits and she decides that you know she's in love with that person and all this kind of stuff and then the real person emerges and she in tandem with her suspicions about well actually maybe he's not as innocent as he seems is just this realization that like I don't really like him very much he doesn't like any of the things that I like and we don't really get on and this is not really working so that I thought that was an interesting layer to add in that it wasn't just she starts like going through his phone because she's worried that maybe he did the crime after all she starts Mm. worrying that he doesn't really want to have sex with her in the way that like a bad marriage might have those worries anyway. Yeah, I guess it's yeah, it begins as a portrait of a kind of ordinarily bad marriage. Mm. And it, there are obviously lots of extraordinary circumstances like 
fame that's an extraordinary circumstance and a pressure on any relationship but in a way a lot of that feeling of like oh what kind of mood is he going to be in today I think is relatable for a lot of people who've been in sort of toxic relationships where it depends on whether whether the guy's in a good mood or a bad mood that day how how it's going to go so that is really interesting the way all those things kind of blend together I think the character of Dennis for me is sort of if Stephen Avery was more of a Ted Bundy type, you know, mm. he's come from the circumstances of a Stephen Avery from making a murderer. He's He's got that sort of background, but he's handsome and very charismatic, even when yes. he's sort of being sulky and quiet and when he's sort of being difficult in prison we get the impression that he is extremely charming. Therein lies his ability to get these women, you know, Samantha lives in Bristol and he's in the American South and yet she ends up going all the way, you know, you know, that's his charm has this power over ordinary people like her. Yes, she's a bit vulnerable, but she ends up basically uprooting her entire life for someone she'd never, she's never even met. And there has to be, some motive for that there has to be some charm Mm. in the lead guy for that to work so he is even though he's not very likable he is very charming I think it is definitely a question I think that is posed more broadly by the way true crime narratives are told at the moment which is why do some cases attract attention like is portrayed in this book and why don't others Mm. and obviously some of it is just the luck of the draw you know if a talented filmmaker or documentary maker happens to light on a particular case it's obviously more likely to get attention than others but you know there are say podcasts for instance about fascinating cases that I've listened to that really don't have any sort of fuss around them Mm. and I think it is down to that that if there isn't a protagonist with this sort of like creepy attraction to them people don't get so into it also the pity and the fury that she feels for this character is really something that is made a lot of at the beginning and although i said it was like a stephen avery meets ted bundy character there's also a bit of brendan from making a murder in there Mm. in that you know dennis was 18 when he was convicted and clearly from a very vulnerable background you know abusive parents and so on and you know lonely and not doing well in school and And I think that element of like, hang on, this kid was just totally abused because the police needed an easy answer. That is the real injustice of making a murderer is that Brendan plotline, the the younger nephew who is clearly not really able to defend himself and and needs, needs more support than an ordinary adult might when being interviewed by the police and so on. So it's kind of a mixture of all those things. And a lot of those documentaries like... Robert Durst in The Jinx and Stephen Avery in Making a Murderer. The accused figures actually aren't very charming, but Mm. I imagine they don't end up with Tumblr followings like the Boston Bomber had, and you know, (laughs) um, as a result of that. But they do still have these very intense defenders, and I think that just comes out of people seeing what they think is a massive injustice. Mm. Yeah, like you, I'm not a huge reader of contemporary thrillers. I generally only read them when they like break through so much like Gone Girl for instance you know Mm. they break through so much into the sort of pop cultural mainstream that I feel like I'm on a bound to give them a go and it's interesting with this one that that's actually kind of how Amy Lloyd is as well in that she didn't really read them until relatively recently either but read 
Gone Girl. And I think she got so into the sort of the psychological stories that you could tell about characters that she was like, I have to give this a go, Mm. which is interesting because there is not a big sort of twist necessarily in this book. But I think it works despite that. You know, I didn't at any point think like, oh, so actually it was just this all along. Yeah, that's one thing that I actually wanted to talk about. And yet this is a big spoiler. So if you haven't finished the book, go away, come back later. But it's not a mystery, really. There's mm. not. It's not like so in girl, the girl on the train, and to an extent, Gone Girl until about halfway through. You're asked to sus- be suspicious of lots of different people, and you know, with the girl on the train, we have all these male figures that come in that are equally kind of suspicious mm. and could have seemed capable of violence. In this novel, there's only one guy that we know the whole way through that is of any real interest to us as potentially the serial killer at the heart of it. And if they had turned around and said, oh, it's this random police officer that has turned up a couple of times, I think it would have felt like you'd been cheated in some way. So there was really only one direction for it to go in. And Mm. I sort of knew that while I was reading it. And yet it didn't make me want to put it down either. So I think... I think I'm sure Amy Lloyd would say that it's not really intended to be a mystery. But if that is what you go in expecting from this book, I think you would be disappointed. But if that's not what you're picking it up for, then why would you be? So <laughs> it depends how you how you approach contemporary crime, I guess. Yeah, it's not like a classic whodunit in the sense that there isn't a kind of cast of suspects that come into the foreground and recede again as the novel develops. It is sort of like, you know he was convicted of it he's suspected of it he probably mm. did it you know um mm. it, you know it's an interesting way of handling it in its own right and it's also because you see everything through samantha's eyes it's more about her journey from being absolutely definitely sure that this person didn't do the thing they've been convicted of and then as she gets to know him better his community better etc thinking hang on you know maybe we've all been had here yeah um, and it's difficult because it does make you think about how you see the true crime stuff you've watched yourself because I got really swept up in like making a murderer and at the mm. end of making a murderer I thought would well, you know what actually he probably did do it but there's just not enough evidence there so he needs to be retrialed or let go because you can't arrest someone without the you know you can't mm. convict someone without the the necessary evidence but it does make you think you know all these true crime podcasts that go in with to especially the ones that come from a an approach of is this convicted criminal really guilty rather than is this innocent per this is is this walking free person actually not as innocent as they seem if that makes sense um you do wonder like actually how well do how much more do we know than the police really mm. <laughs> how can we be so confident in these you know random innocent project moments that we all have it's it's very difficult um, to be mm. sure of anything like that yeah another thing I wanted to talk about with this book is the setting because mm. it's set in this fictional town called Red River in Florida and I think actually Amy said Red River was orig- like an original title for the book at an earlier stage mm. because she wanted it to s- seem sort of biblical and mystical mm. and stuff and and yeah it's sort of portrayed as this sort of like completely like one horse hick town in the middle of nowhere Mm. where lots of people have like addiction problems and no one has any money and no one has any expectations of how a young person 
will like make anything better of their life you know there's no sort of like oh well you grow up and you leave red river and you go on to college it's just like no you're born here you stay here you have a shit mm-hmm. life so that's the backdrop to dennis's life and so samantha as you say it goes from bristol to that and it all gets more intense after dennis insists that they move into his childhood home Mm. which i don't know about you but i found super creepy that was the the bit of the book where i was like i don't like this it's scary (laughs) yeah and it's so frustrating the character of samantha is so frustrating because under no circumstances would i ever do anything like this so i'm just Mm. like why is she moving into this like haunted house it's like (laughs) a cartoon cutout haunted house with this weirdo like it just so difficult to get into that mindset and i think if there is a twist in the book really it's actually the very final few pages yes which again spoiler alert do have a slightly 1984 feel to them which is incredibly frustrating to read and amy lloyd i'm sure totally intended that to be your reaction to Samantha still clinging on to this guy in a in a kind of weirdly toxic way, even after she knows everything about him to be totally gross. <laughs> and yeah, that's that was really difficult for me to read. I really wanted to bang her head against the wall, but I it was obviously a, a more interesting ending than just having her kind of abandon her obsession because people often don't abandon their obsessions, do they? Yeah, and it's a it's a funny open-ended type thing which is uh, I think an interesting counterpoint to the conventional true crime narrative where you want everything sort of tied up with a bow and Mm. the good people to be free and the bad people to be in prison because she has the necessary evidence to you know put Dennis back in prison but she chooses not to share it with the police but she keeps it as a kind of insurance policy almost Mm. so in a sense I read it as like well Samantha's taken one step towards Dennis in the sense that she's now engaging in a kind of complicity in a sort of blackmail Mm. and that she's still under his spell and he's turning her bad Mm. yeah it's a very very dark way to take the final Mm. uh, few pages of the novel well I found it a really compelling book to read I like burned through it in like a day essentially So we hope that you all enjoyed reading it as well. And just after this break, we're going to hear from Amy Lloyd herself about how she came to write it. And then after that, we'll hear some seriously listener thoughts as well. So do hang on right till the end of the podcast. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So I'm now joined by Amy Lloyd, author of The Innocent Wife, our book club pick for the month. And she's going to tell us a little bit about how she came to write this story. Hi, thank you for having me. The way that I came up with the book was actually watching true crime documentaries. I've always loved them, Mm. but I was particularly watching the Paradise Lost documentaries at the time. Those are about a group of teenage boys who were, they believe, wrongly arrested for a crime in Arkansas in America. And it resulted in them becoming released. And for me, that was kind of where the story began. I was thinking, what would be more interesting is if this all went like horribly wrong in fiction. You know, if someone was wrongly released and they went out and they were married to somebody and it would be incredibly uncomfortable. And I wanted to just go from there, really, and let my imagination run with it. So what was the period from you seeing the documentary to you actually sitting down to write the book that became The Innocent Wife? It was months, to be honest with you. I'd never thought of myself as writing a thriller. And I kept thinking, this book sounds like a thriller. And I'm not sure that I have the stones to write that. I don't know if I can make people be afraid. And I don't know if I can do tension. Because I'm quite a humorous writer, I've always thought of myself as. Okay. But it was the fact that the idea wouldn't go away. And it was a book that I desperately wanted to read. And it became obvious that the only way to read this book would be if I wrote it. So I had to just sort of have a go and see what happened. And so since you say you you don't think of yourself or you didn't think of yourself as a thriller writer, were you a thriller reader, though? I'd read a few, but I was relatively new to it. I hadn't read any until I read Gone Girl. Okay. Because I've always just loved sort of the same group of writers. I really like Donna Tartt and Brett Easton Ellis. And it was Brett Easton Ellis who was talking about Gone Girl on his podcast. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll give this a go. And I just thought it was so much more than what I had expected a thriller to be. You know, I guess before I'd thought of them as sort of detective stories and things like that. Mm. But Gongo was so radically different to that. And it had so much depth of character and it was so witty. And ever since then, I've just been discovering more and more amazing thrillers and thinking, why wasn't I reading them years ago? I've missed out on so much. So you were thinking that maybe they were just quite narrowly focused on like the crime and the detection of the crime and didn't have so much maybe the character completeness. Yeah, I guess I always thought of them as quite procedural. And I'm not really Mm. a procedural person. I'd never enjoyed that sort of genre on TV. I'd never really liked detective shows and things like that. And I kind of made the assumption that they would all be a bit like that. And I was just so wrong. I've just missed out on so much, I think. (laughs) When you came to write it, because you said you were nervous about not being able to do tension, but I think the book is gloriously tense. How did you work on that? Did you kind of plot out the whole arc of the story or did you just like start and see where it went? It was a complete accident. (laughs) When I started writing it, I thought, oh, maybe what I can do is have this really reserved book that's like, it's going to be 
very low key and sort of a rumbling sort of tension. And I thought I would play on the idea that I was hoping the tension would come from is Sam going mad or isn't she? Mm. And instead, what I found was I was really enjoying sort of leading people to an inevitability and sort of a slow building dread. And I think that's what people have felt from it is just as it goes on and on, they're like, oh, my gosh, this is awful. Can it get any worse? And the answer was, yeah, it can. <laughs> it turns out that my brain is really good at sort of making things worse and worse as a novel goes on. I wish I was one of those people who could do like a big twist. But I knew that wasn't going to happen. I couldn't really think of something like how to pull the rug out from under people. So I was relying on maybe just having people feel that kind of sickness, you know, like when you're waiting outside the headmaster's office and you know what's going to happen, that feeling rather than a big twist, a big shock. So yeah, definitely. I felt that when I read it, this feeling of, I sort of think I know where this is going, but I really don't want it to go there. But oh no, it's happening anyway. That kind of feeling. Yeah. Because I think, you know, there's lots of different kinds of tension and stuff. I suppose Gone Girl did really rip the rug out from under people with the way it works. But, you know, not every book can do the exact same thing, I suppose. Yeah, Yeah, that's the thing. I'd love to have that kind of brain. I'm so jealous when I read these books with these incredibly clever twists. And I never get them as well because I haven't got that type of brain. I'm never the person who's like, oh, I saw that coming. I'm always the one who's grinning mm. from ear to ear, like, oh my God, how do they think of this stuff? I'm fine. With, <laughs> I'm fine with not being that kind of writer so long as I can create tension some other way and, you know, make people enjoy it, even if they feel like they know what's going to happen. So you said, you know, you got the initial inspiration from watching this documentary. Was true crime something that you were interested in? Yeah, all, all the way since I was quite young. I was probably too young to be reading the books that I was reading. I was really obsessed with forensic psychology when I was a teenager. And I really wanted to know what was going on in the minds of serial killers and things like that. And I found that like that never went away, but true crime started evolving and changing. Mm. And instead of being like about looking into the mind of a killer, it started becoming about whether justice had been done or not. And I was really interested in the way that that reflects on the way society is as a whole at the moment, this kind of mistrust of experts and of the people in charge. Like at the moment, I keep, you know, we're seeing this sort of like grassroots revenge on all the people like in Hollywood and things like that, you know, the Me Too movement and things like that. We're skipping the regular channels. We've lost trust in them. And I think that's what's happening in true crime as well. We don't trust the system in the same way that we used to. And it's become this very kind of social arts driven investigation into you know crimes and people who have been arrested and wondering if we've got the right people and so because I feel like the serial podcast really blew true crime up onto the kind of main cultural stage but obviously there were lots of things before that was that something that you were aware of and that you followed yeah I loved serial I was really into it but I was more interested in the response to it I was really interested Mm. in the reddit boards and things like that where people were contacting people from the serial podcast itself these completely regular people and sort of becoming amateur detectives and doing their own investigations and they were saying on the serial podcast you know stop doing this you can't harass these people but people wouldn't let it go and I just thought it was so interesting that people could be so passionately involved in something and that they could believe they knew so much about something from you know it was a good podcast but it was just a podcast you know Mm. and I was interested in well what if we were backing the wrong horse? What if what if it was a really clever psychopath? 
Mm, yeah. And it's interesting what you say about the Reddit threads, because that's immediately what I thought of when I read your book yeah. with the sort of, it's like a message board or a forum, isn't it, that Sam gets involved in yeah. after she sees the documentary. Yeah. I was like, oh yeah, I think I've seen this happen in the real world as well. Yeah. But it's really interesting in the book that, you know, she both gets sucked into the justice side of things via that, but she also finds friends. Yeah. And she finds, you know, allies and so on, which is really interesting because I feel like you don't often get good representations of online friendships in books. Yeah, I feel like the internet gets left out of a lot of books, actually. And I thought in my book, it could be kind of a character in itself, you know, Mm. the reactions to Dennis, the way that they sort of turn on him when he comes out of prison because he doesn't understand white privilege. He's come out into a whole different world as you would if you were on death row for 20 years it would be like learning a whole new language. And the internet is a huge part of that. And I feel like lately in books, you get things where you have to explain that somebody doesn't have a phone signal and things like that. But that's about as far as we go with bringing technology into books at the moment. I really wanted to make it modern and for people to be like, I recognize that, you know, I recognize that madness of Twitter, you know, when you're having an argument on Twitter. It's one of the most stressful modern situations, I think. And just putting it in there as something that Dennis had to tackle in the later part of the novel. You know, it's funny, but it is stressful as well. It's really hard to watch somebody do that on Twitter and keep digging a deeper hole <laughs> rather than just being quiet and stepping away from the phone, which is so difficult to do. Yeah, absolutely. I really recognise that scene where Sam's trying to get him to stop yeah. <laughs> arguing with people when she knows he's kind of in the wrong yeah. and that she, he's making it so much worse and he just won't or can't or both yeah. stop. I've definitely been in that situation with friends where like, you know, if you just stop now, we can contain the damage. You know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, I have family members who are like that and you just can't talk any sense into them. Yeah, it's a strange compulsion, I guess is the word I'd use for it that comes over people. Yeah. Like, I must prove to these strangers that I am right about this. <laughs> it sounds totally irrational when you say it out of context, but it feels very important in the moment. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a bit about the character of Dennis, because, you know, he's at the heart of the whole book. Yeah. Did he change at all in your writing process? Did he evolve? I don't think he did, to be honest. He was the most clear in my head. And I think it was easy for him to stay the same throughout the whole novel, because that's kind of the point of him, is that he doesn't change mm. and he doesn't evolve. He's like a very solid person, you know, and inflexible and that's what's so awful about him. He's like all logic and thought. And he's so certain about the way that he sees the world compared to everybody else. And Sam, on the other hand, is like this completely volatile person who feels very deeply and doesn't think hard enough sometimes, you know. So mm. it was her that changed the most over the course of the novel. But Dennis had to stay the same. You know, that was what was so frustrating and scary about him as well. I found him very unsettling, how calm he was and how cold he was. I had some really bad nightmares about Dennis, actually, when I was writing it. He really gave me the creeps. Really? So your your own creation sort of stuck in your yeah, head? Yeah, yeah. I had this really weird nightmare not long after I'd handed in kind of draft number three. And I'd been very, very deep in it for months. And I had a dream that I was helping Ted Bundy escape from prison. And he said he didn't yeah. want to come because I was too clingy. 
And I thought, <laughs> I was like, I've been writing this book for too long. <laughs> I can't wait to let it go for a while. I really can't wait to sort of step away and maybe think about nicer things <laughs> for a time. Mm. So you said that that was draft number three. What was the sort of revision process and so on like? Um, it was really tough, actually. I handed in a first draft that was pretty much unedited. I only had time to sort of chop things out that were really horrendous because there was some terrible stuff in the first draft that I was too ashamed to show anybody. And then I got a kind of macro edit where it was like, this part of the story doesn't work and this part works really well, like expand on it. And then it just kept getting more and more precise. And I guess one of the differences with this novel was that my American editor had a huge amount of input in it mm. because I'm not American. And it was really important to have somebody there to check me on things like car park and parking lots and things like that. But also just the story as well. He had a huge amount of input in it. So I went over it so many times that by the time it came to like proofreading, I felt kind of sick every time I looked at it. I've stepped away from it for so long now that like it's refreshing to go back to it, you know, but I mm. did hit the wall there for a while. I was like, I can't, I can't look at this anymore. You will always want to change things. Always. I don't think that's there will ever come a point where someone writes a book and they think, yeah, no, that's perfect. I want to keep it like that. Yeah. I'm done now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I just wasn't getting that feeling. And it, it's just horrible because you want to change it. And at the same time, you never want to look at it again <laughs> by the mm. very end of the process. And that's the only thing I think that stops you from forever messing with it is the fact that you're like, I can't anymore. <laughs> you have to get to the point <laughs> where you're like, no, I'm letting go of this now. It has to go free. Talking about the sort of American aspect of it, I wondered whether you'd travelled extensively in the States or whether it was mostly imagination. Uh, it was mostly imagination. I love Florida. I have been there and um, I have a good sort of idea of the atmosphere and things like that and the feel of the place. But then for the way more rural areas, it was just google research and things like that mm. i think it came across like okay in the end people keep saying they really like the setting of red river i mean i had a bit of flexibility there because it was a made-up place within florida yeah <laughs> but i was quite happy with the way that it turned out it felt real you know maybe there are people in rural florida who will call me out on this in in kind of three months time when it's out in america but people seem to be they like that the characters uh, the place is kind of a character in itself Red River. Mm. And this massive decision that Sam makes where she just moves there. Yeah. Have you ever felt like you've done something that bold or unexpected? Do you know, no, I'm not like that at all. For all of the criticisms people have about Sam, they don't talk about how like ballsy it is to just disappear yeah. to America. I wish I was that. I was half that ballsy, you know. I probably wouldn't make most of the same decisions as her once I was there. But um, I'd love to have a big change in my life like that. I'd love to be brave enough to do that. Tell me a little bit about your background before, because this is your first first book. Yes. And you won a big competition with yeah. it. That's sort of how it first came to be published. Up until then, was writing sort of your hobby or did you always want it to become your job? Uh, I'd always wanted to be a good writer. I was thinking about this the other day when I was asked about it. It wasn't like I always wanted to be just a, a, like a published writer because there was this huge leap before I got to that part where I was like, I need to get a lot better at this. And I never had any ideas that I felt were good enough to be a novel, you know, and then until this one came to me and it was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to work really hard now and do this. 
the best part of it has been that I actually wrote it and that I finished it and that I was quite proud of it. Everything else is sort of extra. I entered that competition mm. completely on a whim. I was thinking it's worth a punt. That was kind of where I was. I was thinking it's a good enough premise for this book that they may well write back to me and say, when it's finished, give us a call and we'll have a look at it. But it's not quite there yet. That was the level I thought it might get to. And I've had to just sort of pull my socks up since then because I wasn't expecting to win it. And I had to make the book 10 times better than it was and keep going. Now that I'm doing it, undoubtedly, this is what I should be doing with my life. It's stressful in all the best ways. And it's the most rewarding mm. thing that I've ever done. I'm loving every moment at the minute. Everyone involved is wonderful. <laughs> I love Selena and Luigi, my editor and my literary agent. I just couldn't have asked for better people, you know, and I won them in mm. the competition. <laughs> I didn't get to choose them individually. I don't know if I would have done as well if I was choosing people individually. They are just perfect for the book. Are you sort of looking ahead to the next things yet or are you still very much focused on this one? Um, I've, I'm moving on. <laughs> I had to <laughs> let it go. I'm like so deep in love with the next book that I'm writing. And it's quite different to The Innocent Wife. But along the same themes, it's crime. It's a thriller. It's about characters who are going to be difficult just the way they were in The Innocent Wife. I'm hoping it'll tug on people's heartstrings a little more. It's not quite mm. as cold, but I'm loving writing this book. And that's going to be out in, I think we're saying February 2019 at the moment. That's very exciting. <laughs> so are you writing full time then? No, I still work three days a week, actually. And I was saying the other day, sometimes when I'm here, people are so rude to me because I work on reception it really stops me from getting too pleased with myself about the success of the book. <laughs> it's like, I could, buy, I could pull the whole, you know, don't you know who I am thing. But if I told them, I think they'd be really underwhelmed. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I have to just take it. <laughs> There's one other thing that I, I really wanted to ask you about, which I found in a, a little interview that you did on a website where you said, I absolutely love a TV show called Nathan for You. Yes. <laughs> and I wish more people would watch it so I could talk about it all the time. So um, we have a podcast listenership full of people who love to watch things that other people recommend to them. Yeah. So I wondered if you would like to tell everyone about Nathan for you so we can find you some people to talk to about yes, it. Yes, I love Nathan for you. I'm so disappointed that more people didn't watch it. It's on Comedy Central, or it was on the UK. They just showed uh, season one. In America, they finished season four now, and it may well be the last one. To call mm. it a prank show is just is too simplistic but you've got to think he's playing a character and he's a business guy who goes in and he gives ludicrous solutions to very simple problems in businesses so to draw people into a frozen yogurt shop he suggests that they do a poo flavor and <laughs> and it's in the hope that people will flock to try this terrible flavor and the people in the businesses are real and you just realize how polite people are and how they'll go along with almost anything if there's a TV crew there. And it is a genuinely heartwarming, lovely, hilarious show. And I just wish everyone would watch it. Well, we will put that out to the listeners and see if anyone else uh, feels the same about <laughs> thank it. Thank you. You're very welcome. Well, I think that is everything I wanted to ask you, oh, thank you. for now. Thank you very much for being on the podcast and yeah for writing a book that we all enjoyed reading very much oh thank you yeah I hope uh, anyone else picking it up does enjoy it and never tell me if you don't enjoy it it shatters my heart into a thousand pieces <laughs> just keep your mouth shut if you didn't enjoy the book <laughs> okay thanks very much 
So that was our interview with Amy Lloyd, author of The Innocent Wife. Now we're going to look at a few of your tweets and emails about how you got on with the book during this month. First, we heard from Nikki, who said, I loved The Innocent Wife, really well written, riveting debut thriller. So that's definitely someone who enjoyed it. And then Louise got in touch to say, finish The Innocent Wife. Sam reminded me of Rachel from The Girl on the Train, insecure and unlikable, yet morbidly compelling. But while Rachel was redeemable, I couldn't understand Sam's motivations or her actions at the end. Dennis was very well written, I thought. He keeps you guessing. And even though it wasn't an entirely satisfying ending, I was totally hooked. I would have liked more of an insight into Sam's former life, but I liked how complex and imperfect she was. Yeah, I definitely agree that there is that, the the insecurity. There's a line in, um, in the book that I did really like which is quite dark where sam's like oh maybe i'm one of those um really beautiful people who just when they look in the mirror thinks that they're really ugly um, <laughs> and then she's like body dysmorphia you wish <laughs> she's like saying to herself you wish you had body dysmorphia you ugly fuck yeah. which is like the level of insecurity that is going on in her brain it's like so so high so yeah i can understand why that would be a it's a difficult experience to read some of her internal monologue at times yeah no i I mostly uh, agreed with Louise. I think I maybe would have liked to have a bit more, just really to heighten the contrast between the sort of life Sam had in Bristol and then the sort of completely different life that she goes and lives in Florida. It maybe would have been nice to like have a little bit more detail about that, but I'm sure that's probably something that was in a draft at some point and then the publisher was like, it's too long, take it out. And then we also had an email from Rachel who sends us a quote little ramble about The Innocent Wife. She said, thanks for starting a book club. She really enjoyed the book and read it over the space of two days commuting to and from work. It is a very quick read. Mm. Uh, She said, the plot was great and I was not expecting the ending at all from at least halfway through. I thought that the friend Howard had killed the girls on his own and then set Dennis up for it all with his dad's help. Interesting theory. Mm. She says, however, I'm sure that I was meant to find at least one of the characters somewhat sympathetic, but I just couldn't. Samantha was too neurotic for my tastes and Dennis and Lindsay were just not characters I could get behind. Perhaps that was the point of them all to help with the tone of the book. Yeah, I think they are all very unlikable. I definitely don't. I mean, Mm -hmm. Samantha, I think, is frustrating because you do identify with her and you do like her in the beginning. And then she just makes so many choices that are hard to relate to that she becomes kind of more unlikable as it goes on. But again, I agree that that is very much the point. If I had one more thing that I could say about this book, <laughs> there are a lot of unresolved threads at the end, right? Mm, like, Yeah, there are. I was wondering what are we meant to think about Holly Michaels and the guy who was actually arrested on DNA? Are we meant to think that Holly Michaels was nothing to do with him, but the other girls were? Is that the point? I think so. Cause she, uh, but yeah, it's not really resolved. Yeah, is it? and there are other there are other little things like that where you're like, hang on, how did that kind of all come together in the end? But I guess that's part of the point, you know, like in making a murderer where the de- where the evidence goes missing, the evidence goes missing in this too, and mm. you don't know whether how much you should read into it or not. Maybe it just genuinely went missing, <laughs> and that's the problem with true crime. There there are a lot of red herrings. Yeah, and I suppose the part of the point of this book not presenting you with an easy solution at the end is that yeah any if you give emphasis to any one element over another you get a different Mm. possible outcome Mm. but you just can't adjudicate for yourself which which is quote true which is frustrating but I think is a sort of 
probably a more grown-up way of handling a story yeah. than what I would do, which is like, and then the bad man went to jail and everyone <laughs> yeah. lived happily ever after. <laughs> so that was our first book club episode. Thank you very much for listening. For next month, we're going to be reading The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton, which comes out, I believe it's published on the 8th of February, so you should be able to get copies very soon. And we'll be talking about that one in an episode on the 27th of February. Oh, I'm so excited. Can't wait. Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? We're available in all the usual places you get podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, where you could leave us a rating and a review if you fancy. It makes us happy and it also helps other people find the show. If you'd like to come and see us in person, check out the events page of our website, seriouslypod.com slash events. Details of our next pop culture quiz and anything else we're doing will appear there. We're available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr. We're Seriously Pod on all of them. Follow us to keep up with what we're up to or to chat to other listeners about things you've enjoyed on the show. We love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or hearing your thoughts on what we've already discussed. Get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com. And if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously, spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.